This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are in a study of 1 Corinthians, uh, a beautiful mess, which is exactly what the church was. And uh, we're making our way through. We just finished a pretty uh, intense series of messages where Paul is addressing some, some of the most personal issues in life. Marriage and singleness and sex and divorce and remarriage. And we've learned so much. And now this morning, Paul's going to change. In fact, he, uh, he's going to address the next question. Remember, we said that they wrote to him. And in that letter, they asked some questions. Hey, we need you to clarify some things. And so perhaps... Paul said at this point, I'm going to push this monitor back a little bit, he would say, what's, uh, what's the next question, please? And they would respond. They would respond, yes, back. What about food offered to idols? Now, if you are familiar with the scriptures, if you've been around church, this idea isn't that foreign, but I just want to be honest. Uh, food offered to idols, for most of us as Americans, we just kind of scratch our heads and say, what in the world? That's just bizarre. Marriage, family, sex, those things apply to us. Food offered to idols, not so much. I also want you to know what I discovered this week was that apparently the absolute worst jokes in the world are food jokes. And I can prove it if you're ready. What do you call cheese that is not yours? Nacho cheese. Yeah. A few of you were just a little too excited about that. Why couldn't the sesame seed leave the gambling casino? He was on a roll. Mushroom walks into a bar. Bartender says, you can't drink here. Mushroom says, hey, I'm a fun guy. What do you call a fake noodle? Impasta. An impasta. <laughs> Why did the tomato blush? Saw the salad dressing, yeah. <laughs> Why don't eggs tell jokes? Because <laughs> they would crack each other up, yeah. And what does a nosy hot pepper do? Gets all... I can't say it right. <laughs> Gets jalapeno business. Okay, anyway. So, like I said, it's harder than you think. Okay. Like I told you, food, yeah. Terrible jokes. Interesting topic, though. Food offered to idols. We, we really, in our culture, we don't have anything. It's hard to relate except that we're pretty cosmopolitan. We, we read books and we hear about other cultures and we see movies. So we kind of understand the idea, but it, it reminds us of like, you know, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom kind of stuff. So real quickly, I want to give you the background so you understand why this was important to the believers in Corinth. And by the time we're done, we'll try to make a little bit of application today. We're going to touch on this subject again next week from a different perspective. But in the... In the Greek culture, 
and it transferred into the Roman culture, gods and religion were involved with almost every aspect of life. Now, for us, for instance, we might think that way about social media, okay? Almost everybody has a Facebook page now. Your softball team probably has a Facebook page. Everybody has some presence out there. It's just kind of like it, it serves everyone. It does something. It gets the word out. Just as ubiquitous is this idea that every group, not only every family had gods, but every business would have patron gods. The god of carpentry, the god of tapestry, the gods. I mean, they would have people, they would have these gods, patron gods. Every city would have patron gods. Town, low areas of town would have patron gods. There would be gods or religious connections with almost every aspect of life. And because of that, everywhere you went, an event would start with, we're kind of used in the Christian world, maybe let's open with prayer. They would open with worship. Because if these deities existed, the last thing you want to do is have an event in their space or their place and then ignore them. Now, it was, it was kind of, not everybody was super devout. It was, for some of them, it was often uh, like, well, you know, I don't know what's up there, but hey, why take a chance? Okay. And so they would have some aspect of worship to begin an event, to dedicate an event. And that worship always included the presentation of offerings. When we think of offerings, we think of cash or check, or maybe now you do it online. Good for you. But in a, in a society where those things really weren't so plentiful, the offerings were often food, and the, one of the most precious types of food would have been meat, and so it's nice, and, and it can be transported. And, and so anyway, to make it safe, often meat was associated with worship of these idols. So, when uh, you went to your company meeting, they would have a little ceremony at the beginning. You have to go to the meeting, but you're a Christian now. So you sit through the meeting, or you quit your job because it bothers you. You go to your, your kid's softball banquet or soccer banquet, and they have a little thing because of the patron god of soccer and the patron god of parents, and, the, and they have this little ceremony. There it is. You go to a you know, a home and school meeting. You go to a neighbor, you go to your HOA meeting, and before they would start, they'd have a little ceremony. That's how ubiquitous it was. It was everywhere in the culture. You couldn't get away from it. But you were used to it. That's what Greek culture, that's what this Greco-Roman culture was like. That was just part of doing life. Kind of like doing the Pledge of Allegiance when you were a kid at school. It just, it just came, it's how we start. But now you begin to understand the problem that the Corinthians faced. You see, now they've come to faith in Jesus. Now they realize that this little thing is not a little thing. And so they, they have this question. What should we do? Now, there were at least three different kinds of meat being talked about. And I'm not talking about cuts of meat, not sirloin and you know, standing rib. And, I'm not... But there, was, there were meats that were served in these actual idol temples, these places of worship, the, the food that was af actually offered. And, of course, it was offered over fire. Basically, you're cooking the meat. And when that offering was done, the, the meat wouldn't be thrown away. It would be served as part of the worship. Having a banquet was part of the worship. And so there was the food that was actually served in these temples or in these events. 
Then there was the food that was sold in the marketplace. Food that wasn't consumed in an event would be sold in the marketplace, and because it was you know, ready to eat, it was discounted. It had to be sold today. And so if you were a smart shopper, you went to the marketplace, you bought the cheapest, best cut of meat you could. By the way, you typically offered the better cuts to your god. So the best way to get the best meat at the best price was to buy the stuff that had been offered to an idol. Plus, they already cooked it for you. The third kind of meat was perhaps when you go over to a, a neighbor or a friend's house. You're going over for dinner, and then they bring out the meat, and you go, hmm, where has this been? Now, Paul's going to address that specific application next week in chapter 10, 9 and 10. But today in, verse, in chapter 8, he's going to start to try to answer this question. What about meat offered to idols? Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8, and we're going to start in verse 1. Remember, their question is simply this. Is it okay to partake? What should we do? Paul writes this. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Now, first of all, you see it's in quotes. We all possess knowledge. Remember earlier we talked about the fact that the Corinthian church had slogans? This probably was another one of those slogans. Hey, we all know. We all know this. And so what we learned earlier about sex and marriage and singleness was that this was a church that was prone to being polarized. And this subject was probably polarizing as well. I mean, knowing the Corinthians as we do, some people probably said, you should never eat meat again ever to be safe. And others would be saying, it's what's a big deal. It's, it's the best, cheapest meat. Just go for the, the discount. Now, it's interesting. I think the way that this is worded, it sounds like it's probably the, the ones who want to partake, who think they have freedom. They seem to be the ones that are kind of writing this question. Like, it's written like, it, it's okay to eat this meat, right? Because we all know. Now, what is it that they all know? That's found in verse 4. He says, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. Now, he's already said we know several times in this book, chapter 6, chapter 7. So, again, he's writing a church that he knows. I taught you guys. Remember what I taught you. And at this point, he says, what we all know is this. An idol is nothing. An idol has no objective spiritual existence or power. It is a rock. It is a piece of wood. It is nothing spooky. That's what they all know. In fact, Paul's going to talk about three kinds of knowledge this morning. And the first one is right here. The first kind of knowledge that he mentions is that it's the knowledge those who know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. It's nothing. There's just one God. Nothing else matters. He's the one who's in charge. He goes on in verse 4. 
He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Boy, can't you hear that, that theme? They, they, I wonder how many songs they had. No God but one. How many prayers, how many recitations. This was a core piece of their theology that Paul had taught them and us as well. There is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. You, you, you get the flow. He's simply saying, oh, don't get me wrong. I know there's lots of little statues, lots of little plaques and medallions. And, uh, uh, but what we're saying is there's only one God. I want to be perfectly clear. There's only one God. Now, even though there's just one God, it's, it seems as though he wants to drive home this point about the God who we know. And so starting in verse 6, Paul gives what is one of those central passages on the very nature of God. He addresses the Trinity in a sense, although he doesn't include the discussion of the Spirit because he's going to do that extensively a little bit later in the book. But here he's going to talk about the nature of the Father and the Son and their interaction. And this is what he says in verse 6. He says, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So you notice that Paul describes the Father as the source. The Father is the source of everything. And he's the purpose or the impetus for everything. He's the why. The Father is the source and the purpose and the Son is the agent. The Son is the, the, the means by which God's work gets done. So he says, we all know this. Well, we should. There's one kind of knowledge, and it's those who know an idol is nothing, just a chunk of wood. But he goes on to say that there is a second kind of knowledge, and it's those who do not know. It starts in verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge, he says. Some people are still so accustomed to idols That when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. The second kind of knowledge is that knowledge, those who do not know that an idol is nothing in the world. Now, you can understand the sensitivity, I think. If you have been thinking of something as a God, if you've been worshiping, and then suddenly you come to faith in Jesus, it doesn't mean that those other things, those other idols, those other experiences, all of a sudden you're uncomfortable. You feel like you're, you're betraying Jesus. And so Paul acknowledges, look, we all know that an idol is nothing, but let's be clear. There's also a group of people who don't really understand that yet. Now, even as he's talking about that, hey, hey, there are some who are easily offended, some who are going to stumble, some who struggle with this. Now it's almost like he coaches, he speaks right to them. And he says, 
Now, but food does not bring us any near to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better if we do. He almost slips it in to say, settle down. It's okay. Some people don't understand, and I want to remind those people that you're no closer to God if you don't eat, and you're no further from God if you do. You can hear his kind of pastoral tone coming out. But he's still affirming the position that an idol is nothing. And there's a third kind of knowledge that Paul talks about. And it's those who know they have the right knowledge, but there's something missing. In verse 9, he goes on. He says, be careful, however. Who is he talking to? Those who have the first kind of knowledge. They know an idol is nothing. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating at an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? It's interesting. Emboldened. It's, it's a strange use of the word encouraged. It's more like dare. I don't know about you. I spent a good deal of my young life daring people to do things that could kill or maim them. And to this day, I'm pretty easily manipulated. (laughs) Even though I'm supposed to be a grown-up, if you dare me, there's a good chance I will just do it, just to show that I can take a dare. But this is the negative aspect of that. He's saying, it's almost like you're daring them to do something, even though they're not ready to do it. They're not ready to participate. Somehow, by your example, the peer pressure is going to work, and it's going to cause them to do something that is going to violate their Conscience. Now, we're not going to talk about the stronger and weaker brother in depth here, but we're going to touch a little bit today and a little bit next week. I would encourage you to look at Romans 14, another passage that talks about this, kind of a parallel passage. But I do want to talk just for a second about weaker brothers, because it says, you know, they're weaker, their conscience is weaker. And I want to make sure you understand, it's not like they're not defective, They're not, like, mentally incompetent. In a sense, I think it's easiest to think of people who have been involved in activities that were sinful, even demonic, things that once controlled their lives. Those kind of activities leave scars. And I don't know about you, but when I've got a scar and it's still real fresh and pink, and you go to say, by the way, does that hurt? And you poke it, I'm going to jump because it's still tender. When we were doing youth ministry, there was a young man, uh, actually he was a middle-aged guy, helping us with our youth ministry. He was dynamic. He'd come to faith just about five years earlier, and he was a go-getter. He used every waking moment to help us reach teens for Christ. Great guy. And we were going to plan, we planned outreach events, kind of like we do here. And we're going to do a big beach night. And for us, that meant bringing in about seven and a half tons of sand into the church's gymnasium. That went over great. <clears throat> yeah, um, there's a reason why I'm not still there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but we bring in seven and a half tons of sand, and we got palm trees and limbo, and, and, and we're going to, we actually roasted a full pig. He was on a spit. We did the whole thing. And of course, once we started this, 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 this night, and he was involved in it, and we hit the, the, the cassette player, which is what we used to play music back then. <laughs> we hit the cassette player, and we played, what music do you suppose we'd play? Beach Boys, of course. 
And this guy came completely unglued. I've never seen anything like it. He just, he's like, and I'm not going to go through all the antics. I mean, he was very animated. He wanted to throw the cassette player out the window. He was offended at me. It was, he was mad. He was telling people, don't come, don't come. I mean, it's like he just went off crazy. What is going on? What just happened? And then he threw a lot of, took a while. We got him settled down. He told us the story. The bottom line is he spent about 10 years of his life doing drugs and, and, and basically surfing and doing drugs. And this was the, the music theme of his life these songs. And when those songs started playing, all he thought about was what he had done. Oh. Oh, now I understand. Now, how do we deal with weaker brothers? And I want to make this clear, too, because if we're not careful, you can develop what's called a professional weaker brother. people who are offended by just about anything. And in a sense, they can control everybody else by simply hinting, like, well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So what you have to understand about Paul's definition of a weaker brother here, um, I I think the easiest way is just to use an illustration. Let's talk about beards for a minute. Let's imagine that there's a group of people that think beards are wrong. Okay, beards are wrong. So what they say is, number one, beards are wrong. Number two, people who wear beards are doing the wrong thing. But for that person, now that person has a conviction, and they're welcome to it. It's probably because they can't grow a good beard. But anyway. uh, (laughs) But to be a weaker brother, according to Paul, there's a third piece that has to be there. They have to be tempted to grow a beard themselves, because you are. Even though they think it's wrong, somehow they are tempted to go ahead and grow a beard anyway. Now, in my experience, many of the people that are offended by different things, they're offended by them, but they're not tempted to do them. They're not weaker brothers. Okay? The weaker brother is very specific. It's somebody who could be prompted by, our peer, by peer pressure, by our activity, to go ahead and participate like everything's fine when actually everything's not fine. And now, we may not know. We, we can't know unless someone tells us. Paul's not a mind reader. But when you know, then he says there's a certain kind of reaction, a certain kind of response. So back to this kind of knowledge. He's just, he's, he, he kind of reflects back. Remember, we skipped verses 1 through 3 at the beginning. But I think this is the knowledge that he's referring to when he starts the chapter. He says, we know that all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. I won't go into the construction, but it, 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 I mean, this is a good translation. Those who think they know actually don't know squat because they're missing the fundamental piece. It's not what you know. It's who you love. Which is why Paul says, but whoever loves God is known by God. I think in a sense what he's saying is, whoever knows God knows how to love. Knows that the right response is to love. Not just what I know is okay. 
You see, knowledge by itself can do a lot of damage. Knowledge by itself. Now, do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying knowledge is bad. Truth is important. Studying and learning, that's important. I spent a lot of my life involved in that. It's revolutionized my life. God's used it. But knowledge is never enough by itself. Knowledge is always intended to be coupled with love. How you use what you have learned makes all the difference. You see, love can limit freedom. In fact, I'm going to suggest that, in general, it's the only thing that should limit your freedom. But love can limit our freedom. In fact, now Paul gives us three more reasons. Why would anyone give up their freedom, their right? I can do this. Now, now we start stepping on American toes here. And he gives at least three reasons why they might want to voluntarily limit their own freedom. The first one is that there's no spiritual advantage either way, especially in this area of eating. Remember in verse 8, he said, you're not any closer to God if you don't eat, and you're no further from God if you do. There is no spiritual advantage here. So it's not a big deal. Now we say, well, yeah, but, you know, I like Beach Boys music. Okay. Now we've just entered a whole different realm of likes and dislikes. He's talking about what will impact another. Secondly, he says, you might want to think about voluntarily limiting your freedom because by exercising your right, you could hurt your brother and sister. He says that in verse 9. He says, be careful, however, that your exercise of your rights doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. He says something similar in verse 11. He says, so the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge, not inconvenienced. If you don't like the shirts I pick out, that's one thing. But if something that I do prompts you to do something that violates your conscience, Paul describes that as a potential destruction of your spiritual progress. Actually, we know that to be true, don't you? If I were to ask you today, how's your spiritual life going? Are you progressing? And some of you would say, I think so, yeah. And a few would go, and I'll bet if we had time to talk about what that is connected to, it's something that you did that you knew you weren't supposed to, and it arrests our progress. It stops what the Spirit of God is doing. What Paul says is, don't do that to them. Oh, they may do it to themselves, but don't do it to them. Thirdly, he says, you might want to limit your freedom because when you hurt them, you hurt Christ. Verse 12, when you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. I don't know if you remember how Jesus used to react when people would threaten those that had the least ability to defend themselves. How he responded when people in power used their power to abuse the powerless. He did not react mildly. Listen to Mark 9. 
If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. I just want to point something out. Jesus is not saying here, that's what's going to happen to somebody if you make them stum- uh, one of these little ones stumble. That's not what he says. He says that would be better than what's going to happen to them. He is not messing around. <laughs> Remember in Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus persecuting believers, and all of a sudden Jesus appears, poof, blinds him. Saul says, Lord, why? Who are you? What, what is this? Jesus says, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul says, because I'm Jesus. Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting Christians. Jesus says, they're one and the same. You see, love can limit freedom. It probably should. So let's just talk a minute about one application for us. Um, And I guess we're going to talk about this because we just had a a presidential primary. So yeah, let's talk about politics for a second. Love can limit freedom. In fact, love should. So what does that mean for us living here now? Well, if you ask somebody what it is that they love about our country, probably the number one answer you get is this. Freedom. And as, as that's, I mean, no one enjoys the kind of freedom that we enjoy. And that's because it's been guaranteed to us, right? Guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. How many, let's see how many of those we can think of. Freedom of speech? Freedom of the press? Bear arms, right? Protest, yeah. What? Yeah, freedom of religion. Yep, we said that. Freedom of assembly. Freedom from cruel and unusual punishment. Freedom of unreasonable search and seizure. Due process. Freedom of the press. And it goes on and on and on. We love that. It's funny. We can remember more of that than maybe verses in the Bible. Freedom is important to us, and it should be. Everybody knows, every grown-up here knows that with our rights, these rights to freedom, come responsibilities. You ever wonder why? And these thoughts come from Andy Stanley. I thought he did such a great job talking about this. You ever wonder why they didn't also make a bill of responsibilities? Don't you wish they had? Yeah. Yeah. We're arresting you because you're not acting like a grown-up. You violated your responsibility. Wait, you're violating my rights. No. Yep, because you didn't follow responsibilities. You see, with rights come responsibilities. But the reason they didn't write a bill of responsibilities is because they thought it was already a given we at that point was a, were a culture of religious people. Not everybody was a Christian, but we were clearly moored to a moral anchor. And we could talk for a long time about what the founding fathers and other uh, 
legal scholars would say about what's happening in our country. And I'm just going to simply say it's probably too late in terms of the government itself being moored. It's been unmoored. It's probably going to stay that way from now on. It doesn't mean that there's no hope. In fact, what I think what it means is that you and I as believers, the way we function becomes just that much more important. See, one of the issues about the law is that it gives out the minimum requirement. What do I have to do? What am I required to do? That's what the law does. The law doesn't inspire. It doesn't inspire virtue or greatness. It doesn't make us want to do better. Look at this. My country wants $2,700 from me. I'm sorry. I'm going to send them 45 Because <laughs> they've been so good. Right? You've been tempted. Right? You, you, isn't it funny? They don't have a little blank. Say, anything else you want to add into your uh, income tax? Because the country's been so good. <laughs> no, we're, we're all asking, what's the minimum? And I just want to point out that that's what the law does. Love does just the opposite. How much can I give? How much can I do? What can I do to make a difference? See, our rights, our freedoms, even in this country, were never intended to be used without love. That's why we read this in Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly. We're going to continue to look at what Paul has to say about freedoms and how we relate to others, brothers and sisters. But today, I think it's just enough for us to stop and say, as Christians living in this country, given the political environment right now, grace is hard to find. I find it hard to find myself. But when, I re- am, when I'm reminded that what God expects from me is to couple my responsibilities or my rights with my responsibilities to love, to seek someone else's better. Three statements from Andy Stanley, directly from him, so I don't want no credit for this, but I just thought it was so worded so perfectly. Some encouragements. First, do what is just, not simply what you can justify. You see the difference that love makes? Do what's responsible, not just what is permissible. If you find yourself always asking, well, what's the minimum? What can I get away with? Then I'm going to suggest that you're not really tuning in to the love of Christ. Thirdly, do what's moral, not what is just what's modeled. You do what's modeled in our country, <laughs> almost anything is permissible. We as believers have a responsibility to use these freedoms we have. <laughs> I remember when it was a big deal. I was the dean at a college, and I had to enforce you couldn't go to the movie theater. You weren't allowed to go to the movie. And this is, it was absurd. You could rent movies. 
You could go to Blockbuster and rent a movie, but you couldn't go to the theater and see the same. It was ridiculous. And it was because of these pressures and what people thought. So I know what that's like. It's, it's silliness. And yet, you need to know that during that time, as a faculty member, I can honestly, before God, say, I did not go to a theater. The rule is stupid. And it's since been done away with, of course. I did that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> no, um, but, but all that time, all those silly little rules that students had to follow, because I loved students, I won't go either. Believe me, I, there were other faculty members who did, because they say, that's silly. It is silly. Loving students isn't silly. What is it that you can do this week to show love for someone when you don't have to? You go out of your way. You sacrifice. You put up with music that, or you go with it. You do what, and you just, ah. Uh, and yet I do it. I choose to do it because the love of Christ compels me. I'm going to suggest that in a culture that's preoccupied with its rights, nothing will make a bigger impact than when we give ours up. I'm not talking constitutional rights. I'm talking about personal rights. If you want to impact the people around you, watch for opportunities to give up your personal right, your personal freedom out of love. Let's pray. It's easy to argue. It's easy to respond back in our heads. So take a moment and ask the Spirit of God to help you know, is this true? And what does it mean for me? Lord Jesus, we're not in Corinth. We're in Hatfield. And although there's many aspects of our culture that we find to be similar than, to that of Corinth, there's other areas where it's just so different. And yet, now we're beginning to see that the, some, some of the principles are the same. As we interact with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, Teach us what it means to give up our personal freedom and the comfort that we might enjoy for the sake of someone else because we love them. Not giving in to their, uh, their tastes, that's, but, but certainly not causing another one to stumble. Teach us what it means to use our freedom in such a way as to show love. And I ask it in your matchless name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.